Let's pray. And Father, I am grateful that you have given us freedom and set us free. Help us now to think about your word well today. Give us your spirit to be with us, to enlighten us, and to give us courage to obey and do what your word tells us to do. We ask your favor in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In our reading from Joshua this morning, we meet the children of Israel coming up out of the Jordan River. They have been wandering in the wilderness now for 40 years, and they have come to the Jordan, and God miraculously parts the waters, and they are now moving in to the land of promise, the land that was promised to their forefather, Abraham. <clears throat> and they end, this is the end of their time in the wilderness, and it ends in a very similar manner to how their time in the wilderness began. The, the beginning of the leaving Egypt, like we just talked about, there was the parting of the Red Sea. And now at the end of their wanderings, there is the parting of the Jordan River as they enter into the land. These, it is clear to me that these two partings of the water, this beginning and this ending, are a pair. They're a unit. They are to be seen in light of one another. They inform one another, and in some ways, the second parting completes the first. And so I'm going to take a few minutes now to think about the two together, to, do, uh, um, to compare them and see some similarities and differences that I think are important to see and understand. The initial parting of the Red Sea, the initial parting of waters, represents, of course, a coming out. They are coming out of Egypt. And I just talked about this with the children. Egypt is a picture of sin, of bondage. It represents the world, as in the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we are fighting against. It is a picture of the systems of the world that exalt themselves against God and find no need for Him. And Israel was in bondage in Egypt, in bondage to sin. When God gets them to Sinai, and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. He's never making them his people. He begins the Ten Commandments with a very important statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. You were slaves in sin. And now I'm going to tell you how you're to live. Now I'm going to give you the law to show you how to live not in sin, as free people, as people who've been set free from the bondage of sin. So they, in the parting of the Red Sea, they are coming out of this bondage. They are being released. The parting of the Jordan River represents a going in. They are going into Canaan, the promised land, the place of blessing, the place that will house the temple, the place from which the worship of God will spread throughout the world. This is not a leaving of something, but a taking a possession of something. A movement away from sin and into blessing. 
The parting of the waters in both cases represent the fact that neither one of these things, release from bondage or going into blessing, can be accomplished by the people themselves. It had to be done by God. There are ways for the people to cross the Jordan River without it being parted. People did that. <laughs> there was not an impassable, it was not an impassable body of water. But God did that on purpose. He parted the waters in a part to show, you're going into the land and I am taking you in there. You cannot do this on your own. I am going before you. And just as you came out of slavery to sin, you're going into blessing by my grace, by my power. It is also helpful to note the way in which God parts the water. At the Red Sea, he tells Moses to stretch forth his rod over the sea, and then God parts the waters. The rod, of course, is a shepherd's tool, and Moses is a shepherd. He was a shepherd in Midian, and now he's a shepherd of a flock of very confused and helpless people. He's shepherding them. It's also, the rod is also a sign of authority, and Moses here is that authority. At this point, it is not so much that the people are following God. They're following Moses. They're following this great leader. Now, God has appointed them to lead, but the people at this point are looking at Moses. They'll come to Sinai when God, God will say, all right, now, now really, it's, you're my people. But now they're confused and they see this man as the one they're following. The Jordan River is parted by the priests carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant, stepping into the river. God says, the priests will go before the people carrying that Ark, and when the soles of their feet touch the water, I will part the water, and the people will pass through. They are no longer a confused and helpless flock. They are now a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people in covenant with their God. They have matured. They have grown up. They now walk with confidence into the land. God has made them into a people. It is no longer Moses who is leading them. It's the priests, those who represent God, who part the water. And they're carrying the sign of the presence of God among them and the sign of the covenant that God has made with them. Notice also the place of fear in the two partings. In the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, Israel is afraid. They are panicking as they are chased by the Egyptians. Their enemy is behind them, chasing them. And they're at a point where they are in desperation. At the Jordan River, it's the people in the land who are afraid. Joshua 5.1, which we read, says, When the kings of the land heard of the crossing, their hearts melted. And this wasn't, as we say, hearts melting. It wasn't, oh, that's so cute. This was a, a fear, right? It says that they had no strength left in them. They were afraid. It is now the case that Israel's enemies are before them. 
And it is not in Israel that is panicking. They now have realized that God is their God, and they walk into the land with confidence now that God will provide and give the land that he promised to them. Another point of comparison is the keeping of the Passover and the eating of the Passover feast. In the first event, the Passover, I mean, it actually happens, right? This is the event of the Passover in the Exodus. And the meal is eaten before the people leave Egypt. They're still in Egypt when they eat the meal. In the second event, it is observed after the Jordan River is parted and the people enter into the land. And this is only the second time that the Passover has been remembered, if you will. On the first anniversary, after the people have come out of the land, God tells them, this is the first anniversary of the Passover. You now observe the feast, and the people do. After that, for the next 39 years, they don't. The Passover is not kept until they enter into the land. And then when they enter into the land, the first thing they do, the very first thing they do is keep the Passover. They set up the, the stones of remembrance, right? And they keep the, fast, the, the feast of the Passover. The feast of the Passover was established as a remembrance, as a memorial. And a remembrance and a memorial here in, in this teaching is not a mental activity. It is not a thinking back and say, ah, let's, let's think back on the time when God brought us out of Egypt. And let's just think about it and be really happy about that. And remember how God gave us freedom from the bondage of, of, of Egypt and sin. It is not a mental activity. I mean, that, that takes place. You do think about it. A remembrance, a memorial is a participatory event. You participate in the thing being done, the thing being thought about, the thing that happened in the past. It is a current participation in a past event. The Passover, the exodus of the people from Egypt was not just for the people who walked through the Red Sea. It was for all generations of Israel. And these future generations participated in it, appropriated it by means of the Passover feast, by keeping the Passover. So the original Passover feast, in a sense, the meal in Egypt, was given not for the participants of the Passover, the ones who, for whom this actually happened, with the, door, the blood on the doorpost and the parting of the water. It was for future generations. And then the first year after, it established the tradition, but it was not observed again until the new generation has come, and they have entered into the land. There's that long section that we read about the, the circumcision, the, the circumcision again of all the, the people who had come out. The original people who come out had been circumcised, and then for 40 years in the wilderness, they had not been circumcised. And then that generation dies off, and this new generation that had not been there for the Passover, they go through into the land, or circumcised, and now they observe the Passover. This is the first time when this remembrance, this participatory remembrance takes place in the land that God has promised them.
One last comparison. I touched briefly a minute ago on the fact that it was Moses who brought the people out of Egypt at the Red Sea parting. He was leading then. And in 1 Corinthians 10 that we saw last week, Paul says that all the people were baptized into Moses in the sea. In the Jordan parting, it is no longer Moses who is leading. It's Joshua. In chapter 3 of Joshua, before the crossing, God tells, tells Joshua, Today I will exalt you in the eyes of Israel, so that they will know that you are my chosen leader. You're the one I've chosen to lead the people. And I will exalt you in the eyes of the people. And he does so by parting, parting the river. Of course, we know that Joshua, which means God is salvation, is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. So as Christians reading this, we hear Joshua in the parting of the waters, and whereas the Red Sea was in baptism into Moses, the entering into the land of blessing comes through a baptism into Joshua or Jesus. I end with this comparison of Moses and Joshua to move from the two partings of the water in the Old Testament, the two Old Testament baptisms, to two New Testament baptisms, the two baptisms that we find in the New Testament of Jesus. His first baptism is in the Jordan, and it is the baptism of of John, a baptism of repentance. It is a call to leave the world of sin, to leave Egypt, and to become part of the kingdom of God. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. We are to hear Israel leaving Egypt here, going to become a kingdom, part of the kingdom of God. Repenting of the sin, leaving the sin, turning away from the sin. Because the kingdom of God is near at hand. This is the baptism of John. But more than that is a beginning. It is the announcement of Jesus as the Messiah. It is the beginning of His ministry. And it is the beginning that looks forward to a future event that will complete and perfect this first baptism. Just as the leaving of the Red, the Egypt at the Red Sea looked forward to a future parting of the waters that would complete it. So too this first baptism in the Jordan of Jesus looks for a future event, a future baptism that will complete what takes place, what begins in the first. Twice in Luke 12, once in Luke 12 and once in Mark 10, this is after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, Jesus says, I have a baptism still ahead of me. I'm looking forward, I'm looking towards a baptism that is still to come. And he's talking about the cross. He's, those, the context of those verses when he says, there's a baptism coming. Once he looks at the disciples and says, do you think you can go through the baptism that I'm about to go through? He's looking at the cross. And while John's baptism is a call to leave Egypt, the cross is an opening of the way into the land of blessing. It is the opening of the way for us to enter into the joy of our Lord, 
to all the promises that He has given us. John's baptism is not invalidated by the baptism of the cross. Rather, it is lifted up. It is perfected. It is completed by what Jesus does at the cross. In a sense, it's not really two baptisms. We don't really talk about two baptisms of Jesus. It's one baptism in two parts. Just as Jesus is one, one person with two natures, so his baptism has two parts at the Jordan, completed at the cross. So we are not just brought out of Egypt. The Israelites were not just brought out of Egypt and got in the and said, fine, great, you're on your own now. I delivered you from, from slavery. Now you guys take it from here. He brought them out of Egypt and then into the promised land. So too for us. We are brought out of sin and into blessing. And we, we participate in this by our baptism, which mirrors the baptism Jesus had in John, but our baptism is also a baptism into his death. The Romans 6 passage, which I know we're all memorizing at the moment, says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptiz baptized into that second baptism? Our baptism is not simply a nice memorial for those who have decided to follow Jesus. A nice little picture. It is a participation in the great exodus that began with leaving Egypt and ends with entering the promised land. Remember when Paul in Ephesians says, we all have one baptism? He says, we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. He's not being metaphorical there. Nor is he saying that we all get baptized the same way in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. There's one kind of baptism. He's saying there's one baptism. There is one. That's the baptism that Christ was, it went through. The baptism of Christ in the Jordan at the cross. That is the one baptism. We participate in that one baptism when we are baptized. That is placed on us. That is given to us. Just like in the Old Testament at the Passover, the Israelites participated in that exodus in becoming the people of God. They participated in the blessing that was given to them in the land as they kept the feast. Our baptism is an entrance into the baptism of Christ. The one eternal baptism. And what do we do with, with that? What do, we, what do we do with all that? Well, on this Latare Sunday, it means we rejoice. God has granted us entrance, not only release from sin, but entrance into eternal realities. He's given us all things, including Himself and all of His work. He says, this work is yours. I invite you into it. Come participate in it. I give you myself. My baptism is your baptism. And in the sacraments, my body, my blood is yours. I give it to you. 
It's an eternal event that I, ask, that I offer you to participate and come into. What a thing to receive. What a blessing. We should be eternally rejoicing. The fact that, I, that what I talked about with the kids, the fact that while we may sin, we don't have to. We're not in bondage. We've been brought out of that. We should rejoice. In a season when we mourn our sins, we rejoice that they have been taken care of. We rejoice that our mourning, in a sense, is fruitful, that things come from it. The fact that when we repent, we are forgiven, and that we are no longer enslaved. This does not mean that we do not have foes still to face, battles to fight. Israel did when they crossed the Jordan. They still had many battles in front of them. They still had to take the land, and sometimes they failed still, still to appropriate the promises of God. But like Israel crossing the Jordan, we need not now run from our enemies in panic and fear. Even the hosts of hell recognize that their time is coming to an end. And like the kings in the land, their hearts melt and they have no strength in them before the power of what Christ has done. We can walk with confidence in the land. And so this Lent, as we look at our sin, we can look at it with confidence the confidence of the people entering into the land and say, you have no hold on us. We have been given a power to take this land. And it may not happen right now, but that time is coming. Send your times at an end. The bonds have been broken. We've been brought into the land. And Christ our Lord, Christ our conqueror, God our salvation is leading us in so we may have confidence in Him. What a joyous thing the work of God is. That's why, why we're told to rejoice. It's an odd thing to be told to rejoice sometimes. Hey, be happy. We can just, just make it happen. What's being told to us is the fact that there is great cause for rejoicing. You have great calls for rejoicing. Enter into it. Recognize it. You don't always have to be bubbly and happy, but recognize the truth of what Christ has done and the truth of the fact that you've been invited into that work. You've been invited in to make it your own. So walk with confidence. Walk with confidence and rejoicing because Christ has parted the waters for us on our behalf. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.